Hello, and welcome to The Art of the Show. I'm Dakota Gardner. And I'm Jonathan Gardner. And uh, today we will be taking uh, a little look at some of the different eras in Walt Disney World management. Uh, as you know, it went through uh, various different sort of chief, uh, I wouldn't say chief executives, but maybe uh, head creative artists uh, who were designing the entire uh, direction of the parks. So uh, we started with Walt Disney World, and now let's move to Bob Iger. So today the plan is to discuss a little bit about what separates those eras, what some of the high points were, some of the low points were, mm -hmm. and, uh, and everything in between. Uh, so Jonathan, um, let me ask you first. Uh, we, last week we did a lot about uh, what our favorite attractions were. Uh, what would you say is your favorite era of these Disney parks, designed, sort of divided by the people in charge and, and running them? You know, it's uh it's a tough choice because there are so many different uh there are so many different interesting things about each era. I mean, certainly uh what was happening while Walt was in charge uh is unimpeachable and the attractions that we still have today uh from the Walt era are very tough to argue with, but at the same time, he was never in charge of Walt Disney World. He had obviously passed away by the time right. That they were starting, so I think you get some really interesting stuff uh, out of that kind of in between era, when uh, right after he had he had passed on, when the company is struggling to sort of find a way forward without him. Uh, I certainly have a lot of nostalgia, at least for the the early Eisner era, um, and I think that that is also a really fascinating time for for Imagineering, and then I think it'll be interesting to see how maybe things evolve towards the end of Eisner's career and uh, going forward to today. What about Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Uh, well, I I think I agree pretty much with uh, with every sentiment that you have, where sort of the, the last vestiges of Walt, and then uh, the nostalgia for the Eisner period. I think let's take a step back and define each of these era, eras for, yeah. for those who are listening. So, uh, as you know, Walt died before uh, the Florida Project really began uh, or, or launched, opened. Uh, he announced it uh, in 1965 and then passed on shortly after that. And so uh, his plans were certainly in, I, I would say his, his fingerprints were all over the beginnings of it. So the Magic Kingdom uh, and the resort areas around that, I think, are, are pretty inextricably linked to him. Um, I don't know if you would disagree with that. No, I would, I would agree. And to the extent that the Magic Kingdom is based on the Disneyland design, you can say it, it's a Walt Disney park. And to the extent that rides like the Haunted Mansion and the Tiki Birds and Pirates of the Caribbean are there, which I'm sure we'll get to when we sort of start digging right. into the park a little more in depth. Those are, those are Walt attractions. So even though there's no like Walt era at Disney World, you can certainly yeah. separate out certain Walt Disney attractions. Absolutely. Um, so I would say that, that that era probably runs through uh, until shortly after the uh, the opening and, and the kind of launch of Walt Disney World. So I, I would personally, I would probably cut that off after about 1976, which is when River Country opened. Yeah. Uh, and I would say everything sort of before that, you have most of the Magic Kingdom, you have Space Mountain, attractions like that that are all very sort of 
Walt Disney-esque attraction. Well, and that he was planning while he was uh, still alive. Or exactly. that were based on, like, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is basically the submarine voyage, which was right. a ride he did, he was sort of involved in the the creation of. Exactly. Uh, so I would I would call that the first era. The second era, then, I would say runs from about... 1980 to 1984, uh, which really is essentially just the Epcot era, the early Epcot era. Uh, there's other things that happened in that time, but I, that's sort of the almost rudderless, uh, maybe, uh, description of the parks. Uh, it's sort of the, uh, the era after the, the, the Ronald William Miller era, essentially, where you have like, it, you don't have Michael Eisner and his sort of focus, and it's just sort of become this kind of hodgepodge of business entities with Roy sort of being involved, and and it's not it's not really a clear uh, direction. I would call that the the Epcot era, the post Walt era. Yeah. Um, and then in '84 we get uh, Michael Eisner taking over, and uh, I think the start of his, I think he sort of slowly kind of ramps up into it, and then his his lasts. Uh, until uh, until pretty essentially a few years ago when uh, Bob Iger takes over and that's when when he comes in. Um, so let's start then with uh, with this, the Walt Disney era. So if we're taking the Magic Kingdom and we're looking at that as the uh, the primary Walt Disney era, what would you say is the uh, quintessential Walt Disney attraction that exists uh, in the Magic Kingdom, and, and sort of ultimately the the ideas of mix, that mixes together all these ideas of play and fun, but fun for the whole family and, and all of that. What what would you say is is that like quintessential Walt Disney? It's uh, it's a great question for sure, and you you definitely you want to look at the things that kind of marked. Uh, marked Walt Disney era attractions. So yeah, there's this sense of fun, this sense of play. I think the sort of key thing uh, from a technological standpoint is the audio animatronics, which mm -hmm. were something that he became obviously very interested in. And certainly just given the era of Walt Disney World, I think that the rides that and shows and attractions that he came up with and that his team came up with for the world's fair and the world's fair and the world's fair's influence can certainly be felt at Walt Disney world where, uh, you get the carousel of progress and it's a small world, obviously straight from there. And then hall of presidents is very inspired by, uh, great moments with Mr. Lincoln. So nice. I, I think it's interesting. I think if I had to pick a quintessential Walt attraction, I would probably go with, you know, as tempted as I am to say it's a small world, I'm going, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll say, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Carousel of Progress. I was torn between the two of those. I think those yeah. are kind of the two Walt attractions that pretty much made it to Florida uh, without much of, of a change from the California one, like you could say pirates, but it's so different from the mm -hmm. Disneyland design. Carousel of Progress is more or less the now the show that that uh, that Walt worked on, with maybe some of the politics updated for for uh, for 1990. 
And with the future updated for what would have been the future in about 1989. <laughs> yeah, they need to re-update that. But just the uh, sense of, of moving through time and progress and all that, I think that's kind of the quintessential Walt Disney ride. Uh, I would agree. That's actually what I would pick as well. I think that it, it's also telling that it's the... Um, uh, it's the only one left. So obviously the one in California closed. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's, uh, one of the only like personally designed Walt Disney attractions that exists outside of Disneyland. And for that Absolutely. reason alone, I would say it probably, uh, could fit as, as that, as that in that role. Uh, it's in terms of the architecture of the building. I think it looks fantastic. It's somewhat reminiscent of the original show building from, uh, from the World's Fair, and uh, which, if you see, if you see the design photos of, uh, are just incredible. All of the, I mean, you and I are both obsessed with Walt yeah. Disney concept art, and that one in particular uh, really stands out to me. And so, the fact that they were able to to at least bring some of that essence to the Tomorrowland in Walt Disney World is very cool. You even get um, the uh, Progress City uh, model, at least in kind do. of a, a bridged version on a different <laughs> ride. That is true. Uh, and, um, as you say, and the, and the fact that the, the TTA goes around the exterior of the building up top, like just the whole thing, it feels very, feels very Walt Disney to me of, of these, these merging different, uh, ideas of city planning alongside progress and the, the nuclear family and the ride is very American. Uh, and all of these things to me really combine to, to give you the ultimate Walt Disney experience, or at least a quintessential Walt Disney experience. The music from the Sherman Brothers is another great example of something that's just very Walt Disney. Absolutely. If we're picking kind of a quintessential Walt Disney ride, it has to have a Sherman Brothers song. <laughs> and I also, when I think of kind of the Walt Disney era of park design, even more than Pirates or uh, It's a Small World, I really think of Tomorrowland uh, 67, which obviously opened after his death, but which was something that he was... Uh, his fingerprints are certainly over, and that notion mm -hmm. of the future, this optimistic vision, this sort of sense that even though it's it's Disneyland, that maybe there's there's a little spinach on the plate, there's a little sort of hard yeah. science there because Tomorrowland uh, in his era was certainly not the uh, not the <laughs> sci-fi uh, slash Pixar thing that it is today. <laughs> and so yeah, once you get that, once you get the the people mover and the future on the go kind of element there mixed mm -hmm. with the, the actual Carousel of Progress show, which is something that existed in one form or another pretty much from the time Walt Di from the time Disneyland opened, existed in terms of concept art, and this is something we want to do, we just don't know how to crack it. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I would agree with that. What uh, would you say is probably the... I guess we'll frame, it, we'll frame it this way. What would you say is the biggest failure from that era that has survived today because uh, a lot yeah. of things went by the wayside, uh, the Mike Fink keel boats and things like that, which sort of logistically didn't really work. So what, what would you say is the biggest failure that's survived until today? Maybe not failure, but smallest success might be a better way of framing it. Yeah, it's tough because anything that we've got from that era is probably a classic at this point. Yeah. I guess the one I have the least love for, which is going to contradict the whole future on the go Tomorrowland 67 yeah. thing is the Speedway, which mm -hmm. is certainly not a great design achievement. And <laughs> I understand why it was cool when it first opened. And I even understand the California one a little bit just because highways and freeways right. are such a, 
important part of California culture, but the, uh, the whole speedway overlay is not attractive. It doesn't really fit with what, Mm -hmm. I guess nothing fits in Tomorrowland these days, but that certainly doesn't fit much, uh, of anything. So that would probably be my least favorite of the ones of sort of there. What about you? Um, I actually was going to go to the other end of the park, and I was going to go with Tom Slayer Island. Ooh. Uh, because I, here's my problem with Controversial. It. Very controversial. Uh, it, I think in terms of the... Uh, it's tough, because on the one hand, it's so, so, so very Walt Disney. The idea of exploring the world of this really important American novel. and and But at the same time, I you know, you and I, when we were kids, we didn't really go there that much. Yeah. Um, and I know that, like, it's just, first of all, it's difficult to get to because you have to take the raft. And I think that that's sort of a not necessarily a great thing now to have, a, like, a line to get to an attraction that you then have to... So, like, uh, there's that. On top of it, I think that it's it can be overcrowded at times. I think it hasn't really stood up to time very well. Uh, I would like to see it rethemed to something similar, but not uh, necessarily... Um, you know, like, my worry would be if... if, if Walt Disney Imagineering was asked to redesign Tom Sawyer Island, that it would become, like, you know, something like, oh, it's the island from this Pixar movie, this, that, you know, like, it would be, like, a whole disastrous thing. So that would be my worry, but I, I think that um, it's essentially just uh, a jungle gym in the middle of the single greatest, you know, architectural theme park in the world, and so you have just, it, it to me, it's kind of, it, it kind of sticks out in that way. I agree that, yeah. the, that the Speedway is problematic because also, ultimately, it's just not that fun of an attraction. Uh, but, um, which even now, the technology exists to make that a lot more fun, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, my problem with this is that it's just, it's a little too, um, uh, I don't want to say simple, but uh, but simple. Well, and it's interesting because the idea of Tom Sawyer Island is for kids to have a space to kind of like play and let off some steam and uh, do something a little less structured, but it's aimed at little kids. And what little kids today are more interested in is that sort of like interactive game kind of experience, which Disney has been trying to give more with uh, that Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom Mm -hmm. thing. And they have another thing that's like that. And it's, it'd be interesting if maybe instead of bleeding that out all over the park, if they had a centralized location like Tom Sawyer's Island to put that on. But because it's in yeah. Frontierland, that it, it'd obviously be difficult to fit it in there. And I don't necessarily know if I'd want that. And then at the same time, uh, you've got between Discovery Island and River Country, these two islands that are being unused, uh, mostly for logistical reasons, but... I think maybe if I ran the world, I would turn one of those into kind of a pimped out, bigger Tom Sawyer's Island. Yeah. And then maybe do something like maybe you could, and then maybe you could use change Tom Sawyer's Island into something uh, that maybe uh, uh, fits more with the direction the park is going in. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow. Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow And tomorrow's just a dream away 
Man has a dream and that's the start. He follows his dream with mind and heart. And when it becomes a reality, it's a dream come true for you and me. So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow just a dream away. Well, it sounds pretty good. In fact, that's just the right spirit. Our songwriters, Dick and Bob Sherman of the Walt Disney Studio. So let's, let's move into the next era, because obviously the Walt era is uh, arguably the best era. Um, I, I, I personally would actually argue that it's the second best era. But, Interesting. Um, it, it's, uh, but, you know, there's a ton of really great stuff there. Uh, but let's move into the, the immediately post-Walt era or the uh, the Epcot era and discuss that a little bit. Because yeah. uh, I, I think that this this era reminds me very much of like uh, a draft pick in, in the NBA draft or something. Where you you like <laughs> it, you can't judge it immediately when it happened. You have to wait 10, 15 years till after it happened to sort of fully comprehend it. And so like... The opening of Epcot and the fact that, like, there was almost no development anywhere else in any of the other parks mm-hmm. is, like, you know, really a huge gamble and really kind of fascinating. And uh, a lot of the other parks got kind of stagnant in that time. And then with the opening of Epcot, you had this weird anti-Mickey uh, thing, which yeah. led to the development of the hidden Mickeys and, you know, all this sorts of stuff that was going on. And uh, so it's a really interesting era. And uh, the attractions that you get out of it, I think, are very interesting. Uh, I think we probably are both going to be in agreement as to what the greatest triumph of this era is. Yeah. Uh, guess. But, uh, so let's start with that. Um, what would you say is, is the biggest success? I mean, certainly my favorite attraction of this era is Horizons. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting because it shows... I think Horizons is kind of the perfect analog for this era and the perfect example of what they're trying to do in this era because uh, with Walt Disney gone, uh, the leadership doesn't quite know what to do. And the direction they're moving in is, on the one hand, we want to keep... We have this way of doing things and we want to keep pushing in that way. But on the other hand, they're not entirely sure... There's not that that single force, single vision guiding everything. So yeah. you get things that are maybe a little weirder, a little bit more offbeat, which Horizon certainly fits into just in terms mm-hmm. of its length and the way that the cars are moving sideways and the, the kind of progression of the imagery. It's a very adventurous, very strange ride. Yeah. Uh, and... At the same time, you get this very sort of sophisticated, optimistic vision of the future that fits in with uh, the, the vision of Epcot and the fact that they were kind of forced down this 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 road of tr- having to do having to do Epcot Center without necessarily knowing knowing what it means. But what about you? What is your favorite, and what are maybe? Yeah, I agree. I uh, it's funny because I think that uh, that. Horizons is definitely weird, and I think that it, it the early Epcot is is a really weird thing because yeah. you don't they didn't really understand it, and I think I think that ultimately what Epcot is 
didn't really, it, no one really knew what it was until really, really recently. And so, like, I think that's what's so interesting about it. When it first opened, it's this idea of, of trying to be educational and following in that sort of uh, legacy of Walt Disney of trying to teach people and showcase the the innovations of science and yeah. and all of that stuff. And it, it, to a certain extent, I think it was successful in doing that. But then there was this sort of weird identity crisis uh, in the you know early Eisner era, which we'll get to in a minute. And then uh, ultimately, I think it's all it's found its place now. But I think what's so fun about talking about the early the early early Epcot era is that it just it didn't make sense. None of it really yeah. made sense. You had these attractions like Horizons and Spaceship Earth, but then you also had Journey into Imagination, and uh, just that didn't really you know that didn't really jive. And then later, uh, Wonders of Life, which in and of itself is completely different from all the other pavilions. So. Uh, and then on top of that, you have uh, the World Showcase going on. So it's there's a lot happening, and it's uh, a lot sort of trying to feed into that identity. And what, to me, made Horizons the greatest achievement is that it was able to synthesize all of that together into one attraction. And yep. so you had those elements of science and, and looking toward the future. You had those kind of silly uh, things that you have in the other attractions with some of the characters and the things that they go through. Uh, you have beautiful architecture, which I think is probably the most lasting achievement of Epcot. Uh, and then uh, wonderful score and just a really innovative ride design. So to me, it it, it definitely, and then idea-wise, it synthesized everything. Because all the other pavilions are talking about communication and health and transportation and all of that comes together in Horizons. I think that on the one hand, it was very of its time. Uh, or I guess Epcot in general and the, the, the philosophy and the ideas that they're using were very of their time, which was yeah. a problem as it got into the Eisner era into the late eighties into the early nineties. Yeah. But it was also very ahead of its time in the sense that we've never been more fascinated and more entertained by technology and science than right now. Yeah. And I think that a society that accepts Google Glass is a society that would have, that would happily go on those early Epcot rides in a way that, uh, maybe the nineties culture was not, was not digging that sort of thing. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. Although I would argue that maybe society is not as accepting of Google Glass. Well, that's There's, a great point. I work in the same, I work in the same <laughs> office building as, uh, as, one of the Google offices and there were a bunch of people wearing Google glass and I knew one of them from college and we were having a conversation and I just, I couldn't even talk to her. I was like, I, <laughs> you're wearing this weird thing on your face. I was just staring at it the whole time. She took a picture of me. It was really weird. So I don't know, but I, I do get the point you're making. And I think it's a, it's a really good cogent point that, that people love technology and gadgetry right now. And uh, I think, uh, to me, actually, one of the really sad things is I would have loved to have seen Apple sponsor a pavilion. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I the the Steve Jobs era Apple sponsor a pavilion, I think, would have been really fascinating. That, like, that 2003 to 2010 Apple company would have been perfect to sponsor some kind of, like, earth-shatteringly cool Epcot attraction. So here's something that... Uh... I wanted to mention while we were talking about this era that I thought was interesting from just a sort of like weird design perspective. Yeah. Uh, is that if you look at the, some of the rides of this era and if you include, if you include like, uh, I guess not dream flight cause that's Eisner, but the, the one that was there before, right. if you had wings and then the Mexico ride, 
and then World of Motion and Horizons, there's this pro- proliferation of rides that have like these sc- these weird interactions between screens and like filmed elements. <laughs> yeah. Like I I am th- like thinking of Mexico. You have those <laughs> yeah. those people you're going by really in the boat in the end, you, and they're yeah. like talking to you. <laughs> and I don't like, what do you think that's like, why was that such a popular design thing to do? That's actually, right well, what's now? funny about that, that's actually, uh, that comes from uh, the fact that these project, like projection was such a new idea to be explored amongst the arts. Yeah. I know from a theater background, that was actually a huge deal during the early nineties, late eighties, uh, theater scene in New York that just everyone would do these projections where uh, you would interact with a projected image of a person with a live body on stage. And uh, this theater company called the Wooster Group uh, in New York became obsessed with that and even still use it to a certain extent today. And uh, and so it definitely was this kind of avant-garde art movement of the time that I think eventually found its way kind of seeping into, uh, into theme park design. And so that's why I think you see a lot of that is that it's, this technology that now exists that makes this sort of weird kind of uh, futuristic as you're interacting with a screen. Uh, it feels somewhat futuristic, but also somewhat distancing and alienating at the same yeah. time. I, it's, I agree. It's weird that there were a bunch of attractions that started doing that at that moment. I think this, I think that it's interesting. I think that this era is, cause you mentioned that whole sort of like uh, it, it's, drawing it's pulling you into the artificiality of yeah the fact that you're experiencing a ride and it seems like this era is more willing to experiment with that in yeah. terms of drawing attention to weird design quirks like that in a way that uh when we get to the Eisner era it will be it will <laughs> be taking similar maybe it'll be doing that but in a more overtly postmodern way yeah, I agree. The, the ways that it's trying to draw attention. And then when we get to today, it comes all the way around, and now there are screens everywhere, but it's expected, it's as part of the diegetic par- experience right. of the ride. Where, whereas, there's this weird relationship between you and the screen in, in these, in this era of ride that I don't well, think. I, to me, I think the best example of that, uh, cause I, you know, obviously the most jarring one as an audience member is definitely that Mexico ride, yeah. which, uh, I remember it's just really weird to have these people shouting at you. But to me, the best example of that is actually on Horizons, where you have an animatronic talking to a video screen of a live-action person, and then you see the other side of it, and you see the animatronic uh, of the yeah. person you were just Was seeing. Was that Horizons? Interacting. That is Horizons, okay. yeah. And uh, uh, the scene I think of is the the, the like the boy working on the... Um, uh, the like the water ship That's thing, right, yeah, and then he's talking, yeah, and so like you now you have you as real body interacting with animatronic body interacting with a video of a live body, and then you see it reversed again. So I think what's interesting about that to me is that it definitely adds to that level of tension uh, between what is technology and what is person, and so uh, it, it uh, we're getting a little bit into the uh, into some of the semiotics of it all, but I think that. Uh, that is is paves the groundwork to a lot of what we get in uh, the 21st century with things like uh, you know the Laugh Factory and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, but we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. What would you say is the biggest uh, disappointment of this era? I would say that maybe one that doesn't work for me is uh, the Living Seas. 
mm-hmm. which I think from a from just a design perspective, it's a beautiful pavilion, but it's just so dry and yeah. so lacking in sort of hey, like it's like you have the movie which <laughs> is maybe I it's interesting and sophisticated, but it's just drained of any sort of entertainment value. And then you have the sea cabs, which are just sort of an omnimover plopped in the middle of your city's aquarium. And then there's all all the post-show stuff. And maybe I'm just not an aquarium person to begin with. Yeah. And I certainly understand why, why people like the, like the originals, uh, living seas. But for me, I think it, it almost is, it almost takes all the things that are successful about other uh, the, the other rides of, of this era and maybe amplifies them and pushes them a little bit too far and just doesn't quite come together for me. Yeah, for me, I felt like it never lived up to its promise. Uh, I still, I prefer it to the current incarnation where it's essentially just a big Finding Nemo attraction. But yeah. um, I, to me, what was what was so odd about it is that you had, you know, you had the film, which was very dramatic and uh, sort of this enormous promise. And then you go into the hydrolators, which was such a cool effect. And then uh, you get into the sea cabs, which were really, it felt very much like an afterthought uh, where you would just sort of board them moving. You could, you could sort of see into the sea base as you were boarding them. There was, Less than no theming attempted. You were just sort of on this, like, big gray carpet going through an aquarium. And then it let you out into the actual, you know, pavilion era area, which didn't have a ton other than just look at the fish. So to me, it felt like you just, you set the bar so high with this super dramatic film and then this sort of effects-driven sequence of bringing you down to the sea base. And it never really lived up to that promise. I mean, largely due to budget constraints. But still, that was that was my problem with it, is that it just set up something so cool and then failed to deliver on that promise. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that it feels like the build-up to something... It feels like you're building up to something bigger, and then mm-hmm. when you reach the point that it's building up to, that's the end of the ride. Like, right. the ride is over. Or, yeah. And then you just sort of interact with an aquarium. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it's disappointing. But even now, I you know... I still think now it's not necessarily a great success. Uh, the ride that they added to Seas with Nemo and Friends is cool, but again, sort of feels like just kind of a cheap attempt to, to shoehorn in Finding Nemo. Yeah. So what would you say was your least favorite uh, of this era? I, I mean, I would agree. I, I would say it's probably the Living Seas. If I had to, if I had to go elsewhere... Um, I, I think it would still be that, you know, I just, I can't think of anything else. Because the rest of the park, I think, has either, has either grown to become really great or, uh, or already was really great. Um, you could argue that the, the sort of Communicore area was immediately, like, the moment it opened was kind of a ticking time bomb in terms of just they needed to replace it. But, uh, that to me is just growing pains. So I, I would say the only kind of fundamentally flawed thing was the Living Seas. Uh, so before we before we move on, because uh, we looked at Epcot, and obviously Epcot was kind of the thing that loomed large in this era. But are there any? Is there anything that they did at the Magic Kingdom that you thought was interesting, or that maybe kind of fits in with what uh, they were trying to accomplish in this era? It well, seems like 
most what would you of, say? Well, I don't, cause thinking about it, it seems like it's more overtly like either things that they ported over from Disneyland when Walt Disney ran it, or mm-hmm. it's things that they were doing that were trying to live up to that, uh, that standard. So I, I guess trying to think of, you know, all the fantasy land dark, I guess there's like, yeah, there's, there's not, there's not much else that doesn't fit into one of those categories, I suppose. Maybe yeah. Big Thunder Mountain. Maybe. I mean, that was definitely, uh, a big attraction. Um, but again, the thing about a ride like that is that it's essentially just a Disney version of a roller coaster. Yeah. And I think just the problem with that one too is that it's sort of a less successful attempt of what they did with Space Mountain, where Space Mountain is this, is actually the ultimate. Disney version of a roller coaster. I think the most interesting stuff that this group of people worked on that wasn't Epcot, because obviously mm-hmm. Epcot's number one, is probably the resort, the resorts in the village, because that is... That's true, the village, yeah. That, that's stuff that maybe Walt Disney considered, but that his fingerprints weren't on at all, and you get the contemporary, you get the Polynesian, which are really brilliantly designed kind of like mid to late 70s sort of buildings, or I guess early 70s. And then you get the village, which has this uh, earthy uh, vibe that's just totally different from anything else that the Disney company would ever really attempt. Let's move into the Eisner era because there, there's a lot to talk about here, and uh, and I even amongst this era, there's sort of a, an era A and an era B. Yeah. So uh, let's we'll start with let's start with the so-called Disney decade, uh, which is definitely the like the pinnacle of Eisner, sort of the peak Eisner era. Um, in that era, you had dozens of hotels open. Um, you had uh, the opening of of uh, two new theme parks. Uh, you had the Hollywood Studios, then MGM Studios, nay, MGM Studios, <laughs> and, uh, and Animal Kingdom. So, obviously, just a tremendous amount of development happening. Uh, you have Typhoon Lagoon, you had Pleasure Island, you had Blizzard Beach, uh, you had the Speedway, uh, you had the, the ill-fated Disney Institute. So there's all kinds of stuff happening. Uh, and, uh, all kinds of, of development and redevelopment and just a ton of resources being put into it. So this is going to take a little bit of time and we probably won't be able to settle on one, uh, best and worst for this. But, uh, uh, what, I mean, what would you think is sort of the standout, like just off the top of your head, the number one thing you think of when you think of the Eisner era? I guess the number, I guess the first thing I think of and the thing that he really for good and ill uh, I guess I guess the two main things are the the two main things that he contributed that his era contributed to to the design of the attractions yeah. and to the overall feel of the attractions were uh, texture 
But mm-hmm. but also that thing we were talking about last week of plot versus story. Yeah. So on the one hand, during the Eisner era, you get these amazingly textured environments, which obviously were around beforehand, but they're different in terms of just the the level of realism, the amount of detail, the you know the the cues during the Eisner era. Uh, these are the cues. I mean, if you think of the Tower of Terror yep. or Kilimanjaro safaris mm. or it, the Indiana Jones at, at Disneyland, these are things that could be rides of their own just in terms of the level of detail and atmosphere and texture that the design has. And that's Absolutely. really something that Imagineering started to focus on during this era and that I really think helped out. But on the other hand, you get this these increasingly complex stories that clearly reflect Eisner's taste as, as, as a film guy and as somebody who's coming in having succeeded with movies, which have a very clear, very set in stone structure of the story has to hit these beats and these things have to happen for you to be satisfied when it's over. And if you were to think about, maybe what an Eisner Pirates of the Caribbean or Eisner Haunted Mansion would look like, it would be something like uh, where a pirate has gone gone missing and you have to find right. the pirate <laughs> or where you have uh, five minutes to help a ghost track down the key to the building or the right. building is going to collapse or something like that. Whereas that's not what those rides are and maybe that's not what these attractions at their best are striving to do. But uh, what do you think? Do you agree that those are kind of, if you're looking at the big picture? Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree totally with that. I think, uh, you know, you look at the attractions that he put in, uh, I think, like, a great example of both of those elements is uh, a dinosaur or a Canton yeah. distinction, where you have this, uh, it's in Animal Kingdom already, which is easily the most beautifully themed park of any park in the country. Uh, you have the, the Dino Institute, uh, which is just, it, you know, it, it feels like a museum from the moment you walk into it. You get that feeling. You hear Bill Nye talking about the, you know, the asteroid and just the whole thing just feels very, uh, it's very well themed. You get, and then you get into this pre-show and now it's like, it's time for like a lot of exposition that's happening. And it's like, okay, this is the Dino Institute. They know how to do time travel. You're going to go back in time and you're going to, uh, you know, save this iguanodon. And then you get back there and then, you know, your tires blow out and you're right at the end of, uh, of the Dino era, the asteroid. And it's like, there's so much plot that it gets to, and it's like really heavy in plot. Uh, and yet you have this like incredible, incredible ride design, uh, in terms of the vehicle and then also in terms of just the the visual storytelling of things being yeah. of it mostly being in the dark and then just sort of occasionally just like seeing flashes of dinosaurs and things like that it's like uh it's a combination of just really really advanced visual imagery and storytelling but also like a really lame plot that does not need to exist. Well, and this, and, the whole yeah. like having to find the iguanodon thing <laughs> is the perfect example. Yeah, that's but you're it's right. A, it falls into that where you just you have this needless sense of of plot where you don't need it. And yeah. uh but I, I don't think what but what to me the interesting tension of the Eisner era is that not every attraction is like that. Mm-hmm. And uh that that I think that that's the majority of what he did. 
But uh, you think of some of the really big ticket things. To me, the biggest ticket, uh, the biggest success of the Eisner generation by far, in terms of just specific attractions, is Splash Mountain oh. because it uh, it updates the idea of a Disney attraction, uh, but is just still so kind of classic Disney with uh, the music. There isn't really a plot, but there is, you know, it, it's, it's, it, to me, it hits that perfect line of story and plot. Uh, it, 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 but it also is somewhat of a thrill ride with the splash at the end, which is very 21st century Disney. Yeah. It's, it's a dark ride that, uh, happens to also be a thrill ride or like, yeah. it's very clearly in the tradition of, Peter Pan's Flight and Alice right. in Wonderland and Mr. Toad. It's trying to be that kind of ride. And it just happens to have a massive splash on it. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's that's my feeling, is that it, it essentially bridges the gap between that, like, 70s-era Disney and then, you know, the 90s and 2000s-era Disney perfectly, where you have these just sort of... A ride that exists almost entirely to be charming, but also has that sort of one thrill draw to it that will bring adults and teenagers to it. So that to me is why I think of it as kind of the ultimate Eisner attraction. What do you think about uh, Eisner and this era of Imagineering's record as far as dark rides go? Because if you look at their body of work, you've got Splash Mountain, which is great, and Winnie the Pooh. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also Journey into Imagination. Well, so... Yeah. That needs, uh, well, okay, so I think that, I mean, we could do an hour on Journey into Imagination and what they did to that ride. Yeah. Um, and I heard, I heard an interesting theory on another podcast, uh, where they suggested that essentially that, that the Eisner era came in and those people sort of looked at all the stuff from that, like, post Walt, pre Eisner era and just were like, we want to put our fingerprints on as much of this as possible. Mm -hmm. The idea of Dreamfinder and Figment specifically seemed somewhat distasteful to them. And, uh, and I think I get aesthetically part of that because they were literally the only characters in the park yeah. at Epcot. It was like you have, you know, the world of motion, which is this sort of investigative ride that sort of it's silly, but you know, it, there aren't characters. You have horizons, you have spaceship earth, you have all these things. And then you had this sort of ride with like, a, you know, easily one of the most popular characters in parks uh, in figment, but it's like, it, it didn't really feel like something that you, that was existing in the rest of Epcot. So they tried to change it and uh, totally destroyed uh, one of my favorite attractions of all time to the point where when Eisner finally wrote it, he immediately ordered like a $5 million <laughs> renovation of it. Like, immediate, like the second he stepped off the, the redesign of it, he was like, this is horrible, we need to fix it. And so like I think that is uh, an example where they took something that didn't have a plot gave it a plot, and uh, totally destroyed it. And uh, that actually brings up one of my favorite tropes of the uh, Eisner era mm -hmm. that I I didn't notice this myself. I was reading an article on uh, my favorite Disney blog, Passport to Dreams, Old and New, yeah. and they were talking uh, about the how the, in a, a large amount of rides that were produced in this era, you are a tourist <laughs> yeah. and you are going on some kind of tourist, like whether it's star tours where you're taking a, a flight or mm -hmm. whether it's 
the journey into imagination where you are touring the imagination institute or it's tough to be a bug it's tough to be a bug countdown to extinction it's this really interesting (laughs) postmodern kind of trope that is like i guess it assumes that at this point the audience can't accept can only accept so much so they can accept that they're that this thing is real, but only that it's real as an installation in Disney for a tourist to experience. Right. I, it's weird. I don't know. It is weird. Well, I think here's this is actually what bugged me about that attraction more than anything. Because yeah. uh, I don't oppose that conceit in and of itself. But what bothered me is that it it starts with this scan of your imagination, or it did at the oh, time. Yeah. And, and it basically was like, yeah, you people, you have no imagination. So we're going to go, and now we're going to try to give you some more imagination. And then at the end, you'll be so full of imagination, you'll be great. And it's, it's really insulting. insulting. Yeah. yeah, and so you're sitting there, and you're at Walt Disney World, and, and you're being told that you lack any sense of creativity or imagination. <laughs> and, like... That's really problematic when you think of the fact that, like, this, these rides are designed for children and, just, like, it, and it's supposed to be this sort of fun, wonderful, magical place. And, yeah. you know, that to me was always the main problem with that ride and continues to be is the idea that, like, you are somehow not as good as the people who are designing it. Yeah, and it's like, I've seen, I've seen that ride, so you're not the one who's gonna lecture to me about my <laughs> I mean, you're right. And, and, you know, I think that but, some of the, the genius, the other attractions of, of the history of Disney have been in sort of trusting the audience, and this one doesn't at all. I think that that is, when Eisner goes wrong, when this era goes wrong, rather, I should say, mm-hmm. because he's not, uh, right. drawing the concept art and writing the shows. But when this era goes wrong, it's that crassness and that maybe, uh, uh, in, uh, uh, obviously this is an extreme example of insulting the audience, but there are the, the, when you think about the worst rides and attractions of this era, your journey into imaginations, your, uh, enchanted tiki room under new managements, right. uh, your stitches, it's like, although stitch may be pushing it, uh, I don't know it's a little later, where, but yeah, but mm-hmm. yeah, there's just sort of a, a crassness. And a cynicism that bleeds out towards the audience that kind of poisons the entire experience. Whereas if you look at everything before that, there's a generosity and mm-hmm. an innocence to those rides that they, they invite you in and they invite you to participate in the experience instead of maybe lecturing at you for being a rube for wanting to do this in the yeah. first place. Well, yeah, it gets into this sort of notion of, uh, and this, I think, extends into the larger art uh, movements of the 90s, and this idea of uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and the idea of, like, you know, postmodernism, what it yeah. means to be sort of emotionally distant from something while still trying to convey any sort of an emotional truth with it. And so I think that that's what ultimately is going on, is that you have this sort of the theme. I, I think that the, the parks in and of themselves they generally tend to respond pretty pretty uh, in tune to the art movements of the eras Absolutely. and this being a really really important one of the late 90s early 2000s and so i think what you get is this exploration for uh of snark in the irony in a way that you never saw it uh in the parks at all i think irony never really fit into the walt disney uh, conceit at any point and here you sort of start to see it and i think that it works at times uh but i think on the whole it mostly has has, has failed for them i think like a good example is um, 
the casting of Ellen DeGeneres in the universe of, of energy, who yeah. in herself is very postmodern comedian, but is able to take something uh, that is kind of boring and turn it into something a little bit more fun and, and educational. Um, and then I think the big I, failures. I, I, of I it. think. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh no, I I just I think that's a fantastic point because there are certain eras that the that the things that Walt, the Walt Disney Company do well fit comfortably in and when you think of like when you think about the 60s the part of the reason why that's such a peak era for the Walt Disney Company is that it just fits in the the general aesthetic trends of that time fit in nicely with what they yeah. excel at doing whereas the late 90s and early 2000s you're absolutely right where uh it, it's it's a time where what made for great art uh, did not make for great Disney uh, design. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that entirely. And so I think what ultimately became lasting... Well, actually, here, I'll, I'll take a step back and talk about this, because I think this uh, we could devote an hour to, and maybe will in the future, but uh, is the Disney Institute, because I want to talk a little oh, bit about yeah. this. Because this fascinates me as being uh, what, what I think Michael Eisner probably thought of as what would be his greatest legacy... But uh, ultimately, was a, you know a pretty big failure, and uh, I think what's interesting about it is it's the kind of thing that would have worked earlier on in the Disney history, mm-hmm. but failed partly due to exactly when it hit because it hits in '96, uh, right sort of at the dawn of the internet age, and uh, and sort of like just that those are incompatible because you have this uh, you know the idea of going on vacation to really educate yourself and grow as a person. Uh, in this sort of like weird kind of Chautauqua esque community, and uh, but it hits right before that becomes really cool, and right after that was sort of in vogue, and, and that to me is what's so fascinating. I think a lot of the Eisner era is about responding to the trends of society, and I think this is one that he like totally swung and missed on. Yeah, uh, but it, but was really interesting in what it was trying to do. I I agree. I love those things that you look at. And you're like, what? Like they would never do that now. Why? What were yeah. they thinking? And that's what. Like it's it's a fascinating idea uh, that I think was probably just an awkward mesh with uh, the Walt Disney brand and mm-hmm. the Walt Disney World vacation brand and what people are looking for out of that. They, like it's a sort of it's kind of the same thing as Epcot, where people. Where the Disney company can sell certain things and people approach these vacations with certain expectations. And if they stray too far from that box, then there's this tension that, uh, can lead to dissatisfaction among people. Yeah. Well, and what to me interests me about this too is it definitely falls from the era of we're just going to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks in yeah. the Eisner era. Cause you have that happening. The year after they built the Speedway, the year before yeah. they built the Wide World of Sports and the West Side, so you just you have like all this stuff happening simultaneously. Some of it sticking, some of it not sticking, and you know, like the Wide World of Sports is something that like I never really would have thought of as being this thing that like is still today really uh, a successful uh, piece of the Walt Disney World property. But it is, mm-hmm. and uh, it sort of capitalizes on the idea of sort of like. You know, when they want to bring conventions and stuff there. But, like, uh, it works as a space. And having the Brave Spring Training there works. And having the AAU Championships there works. And, like, all that stuff 
has made has grown to sort of make to build the Disney brand. And so it's weird to think about how like that caught on, but like the Institute did not catch on and like, you know, the Speedway did not catch on and all that stuff. Uh, it was well, very much a, a trial and error era. And I really like the, when you look at the kind of initial era of Walt Disney World, when it was marketed as the vacation kingdom mm-hmm. and when the park was considered just one element of your vacation and they really emphasized you can golf and you can get yeah. a boat and we have all these wacky different kinds of boats for you to ride. And there's <laughs> a beach that you can, I really like that just from, I just from like a idea standpoint. And so yeah. when the idea, I think that that's a tradition that the Disney Institute fit quite comfortably into. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of sad that that's not really what the, the, the vacations, they moved away from that direction. This, I think, is the most lasting impact of the wall or the the Michael Eisner era, and that is the sheer number of hotels that uh, were constructed. Yeah, under his uh, lead, which I, I know you and I probably both have somewhat conflicting opinions about. Uh, where uh, at least within ourselves, because on the one hand, like uh, the it's it came out of a wholly cynical idea of just keeping people on the property and getting as much of their money as humanly possible. Uh, but on the other hand, it led to some mm-hmm. of the most interesting hotels in the world and some of the coolest architecture uh, that you're ever going to see. But then it also led to things like the all-star resorts and stuff like that. So uh, I just want to know your opinion, like maybe um, what like what you think the best, the most successful of the Eisner hotels is, what uh, sort of the, the lasting legacy of that is, what maybe the, the lasting negative legacy is. Yeah, it's interesting uh, because I think that Pretty, I think that all the, yeah, all the deluxe ones, certainly, there's not a misfire in that bunch. Yeah. And you can certainly, you can't really, you can, you can point to any of them and they are excellently themed. They are, I, I think that's really where you see the texture from, from the parks yeah. bleed over is you go to a place like the Wilderness Lodge or the Boardwalk or the Animal Kingdom Lodge, and you still feel like you're being transported to another world. I mean, the Wilderness Lodge, it really does perfectly yeah. capture that kind of West uh, uh, Yellowstone Lodge kind of vibe. And Absolutely. Boardwalk, it gets, it gets Jersey and kind of the seaside attractions of the early 1900s mm-hmm. so right. So I'm not going to... I, I think any, I think that they add such a great vibe to the resort and they give you so many different, uh, tones that that's great. But certainly the drawback is that the lower down the price scale you go, the more <laughs> it's just, and then you get to the point where the all-star resorts are just like, let's throw up a gigantic football and that's how it's themed <laughs> after sports. And certainly I understand why they exist and from, but, you know, selfishly, you'd rather see that money go to uh, something amazing instead yeah. of 
a giant saxophone by a pool. Yeah, I agree with all of all of what you just said. And I think what's what strikes me about it is that uh, a lot of the resorts now have become, especially the deluxe, have become parks unto themselves. Yeah. Especially we talked about this a little bit last week, but the boardwalk beach club yacht club area mm-hmm. it has become its own destination within the parks. And, uh, you know, I think the animal kingdom lodge is sort of a, a lesser version of that, but still you have, uh, the, one of the best restaurants in the entirety of Walt Disney world and Gico, you have, uh, the Boma flavors of Africa buffet. And then on top of that, you have all of the wildlife right there. And so it, you know, it has become a destination unto itself. And I think a lot of these deluxe resorts are like that. Yeah, and, they're uh, just but, fun to go to for like a, a couple hours or even a day. And the Grand Floridian, too. I can't believe I didn't oh, yeah. mention that. But yeah. The Grand Floridian, yeah, I mean, it's huge and there's so much to do. And I, I, what's interesting, too, is uh, um, you and I are the one we always stayed at the most was the Caribbean Beach. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was actually built originally as a deluxe resort. And that's why you have the watercraft oh, there. And that's why you that. have the – yeah, it, it was built as a deluxe. And then when they saw it, they were all like, well, this seems kind of small. Maybe we should make it a moderate. And, uh, which is interesting to me, uh, but it's, uh, what I love about the resorts is they all just have their own kind of unique personality. Uh, and when you stay at one, you sort of feel like you're a part of the story from day to day to day when you go to the parks and then come home, the story continues and that's the genius of it. Absolutely. Well, and you, yeah, exactly. It's a story. And you're, you still feel like you're being transported to this other place in time, which is what you get out of a really well executed ride or really yeah. well executed land. Uh, uh, and so yeah, the moderate resorts, which, uh, I, we, we, we just sort of touched on, they do that, they do the same thing. The Caribbean mm-hmm. beach, you know, you've got that great beach. You can sit in the, the food court. I think that that is an excellently uh, themed area. And the same with uh, Port Orleans. And yeah. yeah, I agree. That's why I think if if I had to pick one lasting legacy for Michael Eisner, I think it would be that. And it would be taking the idea of a hotel at Walt Disney World and turning it into something entirely new. Because even, even the earlier hotels, the Contemporary and the Polynesian, uh, are both... Um, uh, they're less sort of transporting, I think. Um, mm-hmm. The Polynesian, I think you could make an argument for, but the idea of sort of a themed Hawaiian hotel isn't necessarily that, like, you know, it, not that outside the box to think of. But mm-hmm. then, like, having the idea of being like, oh, we're going to theme this one after the Antebellum South. We're going to theme this one after, you know, the New Jersey boardwalks and all that. Like, th- I think that took that idea and elevated it to such another level that is now emulated across the globe. Uh, you know, Universal does it, and it's just, to me, I think that is the greatest achievement of the Eisner generation, is taking something as boring and mundane as a hotel and turning it into uh, an attraction. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. So let's go to Eisner B. Okay. Quick, Just real quickly, which is the sort of post-2000s uh, Walt Disney, or the post-90s you know, 90s Walt Disney, the early 2000s, uh, and leading into the Bob Iger uh corporate takeover if you will uh so what i mean this is mostly i think this is the dark side of the eisner era right you get uh, a lot of the sort of cheaper just like oh yeah we'll just throw the magic carpets of aladdin in there and we'll be good to go like all that stuff so i don't know if, if you have a strong opinion about this era or not 
I, I do. I, I kind of, I feel like a lot of the stuff that we were talking about in the first part, uh, certainly in terms of just all the things that were maybe worked in the early part of the Eisner era here, they kind of curdle a little bit yeah. and, uh, yeah. So you get stuff like, uh, the enchanted tiki room under new management, which is just people screaming at guests <laughs> for being idiots for 15 <laughs> minutes. Uh, you get, the magic carpets of Aladdin, which is just kind of, we're going to stick this thing here. There's a lot of, we're just going to stick this right here. Like, uh, the Chester and Hester dino-rama, uh, uh, thing. Yeah, that's a bummer. And <laughs> there's, I'm trying to think of other, I guess, I guess the, the big triumph of we're going to just stick this thing here was something you and I, Never, <laughs> never got the chance to experience, which was Disney's California Adventure, which was an entire <laughs> park of, we're just going to stick this here. Yeah. Yeah. We never, we've never been there, but it's we've, certainly, Well, uh, and now apparently, now it's a totally different place. Well, yeah. From well, I, when it to first me, opened. if I had to pick one thing that is the negative, uh, thing that I would mention about this is absolutely, without a doubt, the perfect example of the negative Eisner, which is the wand on the top of Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, I can't believe Spaceship I forgot Earth. the, yeah. I can't believe you forgot that. <laughs> that. Oh, my God. I mean, that's ultimately the, uh, that is the negative legacy. That I mean, it was up there until Iger's administration took it down. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that to me is, is ultimately the, uh, the Michael Eisner legacy on the negative end of this sort of crass thing that totally, destroys this beautiful architecture and makes it into this sort of character-oriented thing for marketing purposes. Because I think that's ultimately what happened toward the end of the Eisner administration. Is uh, It ultimately became about, let's see how quickly we can stuff characters into these attractions. And uh, Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, out. certainly... Certainly, if you're talking about what happened with uh, the Tiki Room or mm -hmm. what happened with even Journey into Imagination because that yeah. uh, those were characters from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which uh, I don't think <laughs> maybe has yeah, the lasting weird. legacy of Alice in Wonderland. But yeah. Yeah. So if we're going to move into the Iger era, I think this to me, I mean, obviously it's still being written, mm -hmm. uh, but to me, I think he builds off of a lot of the Eisner era, uh, but sort of builds off of it in a new direction, right? So yeah. if the Eisner era was about um, putting as much of the, you know, the properties, it, it was about, I mean, it was a lot of things, but one of them was putting properties we already know back into the parks. I think Iger has taken that to the next level. Absolutely. Um, in terms of the Finding Nemo musical was an Iger uh, era thing. Um, the, uh, Monsters Incorporated Laugh Floor is an Iger era attraction. Um, all of the Cars Land stuff that's going through now is Iger era. New Fantasyland, obviously, is Iger era. So, um, most of what you're seeing are the, uh, the taking of current properties and putting them into the parks. And, um, I think also you can include the fact that they just acquired Star Wars and are planning on building a Star Wars attraction or land. Uh, I think that that example fits. The Marvel characters uh, are going to, at some point, I'm sure, make an appearance. The thing, the uh, 
James Cameron film, which shall not be named, uh, is also making an appearance. <laughs> so I think that ultimately what you're seeing is uh, a greater emphasis on putting these things back into the parks. I think that where he's building on it is that they're all like enormous e-ticket attractions. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know if you have a feeling about that, positive or negative. I don't. You know, it's it, it's weird because like I think everything from this era is pretty Im- the design is pretty impressive and yeah. I haven't been to New Fantasyland uh yet but the pictures I've seen look amazing yeah. and the pictures I've seen of Storybook Circus look amazing mm-hmm. and the pictures I've seen of Cars Land are impressive But it just gets to this – so I I feel very split because the design work uh, just looks amazing. But it's this question of – it just feels a little corporate. It feels a little synergy – like synergy has become this sort of prime thing to the extent that it's difficult to get something that doesn't fit with – with that, that sort of synergy and that can't latch on to a pre-existing property. And, Mm -hmm. uh, if you think about some of the things that maybe have happened, it's, it's interesting to see where priorities are. Like the fact that there's an American idol ride, but that we're, we still have the, uh, the journey into imagination (laughs) 10 years ago is weird. It is weird. And, you know, you think about all the attractions that have gone in and, you know, Toy Story Mania and all these things that are all, mm-hmm. every single thing that has gone in has been connected to uh, to a property in some way. I think the most recent thing that, off the top of my head, the most recent thing that isn't connected to a property is probably Soren. Uh, yeah. But that is I guess the test track. Attraction. Well, you could, well, the thing about the test track refurb that they just did is that it's Tron, even though it's not Tron. Right. Yeah, I mean, it basically is. It, yeah. it, it, a lot of people are saying it's proof of concept for a Tron attraction. Yeah. And so, uh, which, granted, I would be wholeheartedly for. But uh, that's that's neither here nor there. But I do think that it's interesting that they've sort of doubled down on uh, the architecture and the design elements and, you know, uh, all of the elements of the show, mm-hmm. uh, but are uh, sort of taking a backseat on the character design. I think that Toy Story Media may be the ride that just comes to mind first when I think of the Iger era. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very synergy ride. It's You've got the synergy factor there. This is the this is this huge property that they want to get into the parks. They have the screens everywhere, which mm-hmm. are a, a sort of a thing that I think that, that they've really emphasized, and the interactivity of it is another thing that they've emphasized. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, uh, really quickly, about their emphasis on uh, the, uh, I guess in the fan community, it's somewhat controversial, but the My Magic Plus or the Fast Pass Plus or whatever. The, the I think this will this are. will write the next era uh, for Disney. Uh, I to me, I Fast Pass had such a positive effect on my experience of the parks uh, that it's interesting to see them try to kind of shift it in a new direction. Uh, and connect it to this sort of next generation sort of immersive experience within the parks. Uh, I think it all depends on the execution of it. Right now, the fact that it's just sort of like, you know, scheduling of rides and all that stuff, I think is probably, you know, it's not going to affect that much. 
when it starts to sort of uh, really change things in terms of like, you know, it being your room key and walking past things and things talking to you and all that stuff that's on the table for the next gen. Uh, I really don't know how I feel about it yet, and I'll have to see it in action to really get my, my full opinion about it. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt because, you know, the Disney company has always been about pushing the envelope of technology. Uh, and and it follows in, uh, I think, the Walt Disney legacy of uh, of just sort of putting your trust in the uh, benevolent dictator that he'll use your personal information correctly. <laughs> and uh, so, I, you know, I think there's a certain amount of this next gen that Walt would really appreciate. But, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, we'll see. We'll see what the future has in store for the Bob Iger era. Yeah, and certainly uh, once, uh, uh, once, once we go and see New Fantasyland and kind of, I, I think that New Fantasyland and Cars Land are probably the two big projects of the, the Iger era. And yeah. uh, not having seen either one, it's tough to judge uh, in it it maybe level is. aesthetic uh, mm-hmm. opinions on it. But it's promising. It definitely is promising. And, uh, it, you know, I don't know that we'll ever see uh, the same kind of development and explosion that we saw in the so-called Disney decade. But uh, I'm hoping to swap uh, quantity for quality. And it looks like uh, so is the so is Imagineering. Yeah. Uh, well, and yeah. I hope they don't lose sight of the fact that they can create imaginative experiences that are independent of Disney properties. That everything doesn't have yeah. to be taking you to the world of a movie that you enjoyed and that uh, there's even value to them from a synergy standpoint to have Pirates of the Caribbean uh, that can then be spun off into the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that does it for us today. Uh, Thank you for tuning in and listening to The Art of the Show. I'm Dakota Gardner. I'm Jonathan Gardner. Thank you, and uh, make sure to tune in next week.